KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is the Hive Poetry Collective, and I'm Dion O'Reilly. And today we're going to be talking with Michael Kleber Diggs, who is a poet, essayist, and literary critic. His debut poetry collection, Worldly Things, won the Max Ritvo Poetry Prize just this year with Milkweed in 2021. His essay on the complex flavors of black joy is included in the anthology, There's a Revolution Outside My Love, Letters from a Crisis, edited by Tracy K. Smith and John Freeman. Michael's writing has appeared or is forthcoming in Great River Review, Waterstone Review, Poem a Day, Poetry Daily, Poetry Northwest, Hunger Mountain, and Morius, and a few anthologies. Michael is a past fellow with the Givens Foundation for African American Literature, a past winner of the Loft Mentor Series in Poetry, and the former Poet Laureate of Anoka County Libraries. Since, nine, since 2016, Michael has been an instructor with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. He also teaches creative writing in Augsburg University's Low Res MFA program and at St. Paul Conservatory for Performing Artists. His work has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net, and has been supported by the Minnesota State Arts Board, Jerome Foundation, and the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council. Michael is married to Karen Kleber Diggs, who is a tropical horticulturist and orchid specialist. Karen and Michael have a daughter who is pursuing a BFA in dance performance at SUNY Purchase. So welcome, Michael Kleber Diggs, to the Hive Poetry Collective. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So your debut poetry collection, Worldly Things with Milkweed, such a wonderful press. So it must really be exciting to have your work out in the world. Did you work on it for a long time? Was this a long time coming? I did, I did. I, I would kind of describe it as proceeding in two stages. So for the longest time, I was just writing poems. And, and trying to find my voice in poetry and trying to understand how some of the different technical elements can come together to make a successful poem. Um, and at a certain point, probably sometime in early 2019, I started to think, I wonder if I have a collection here. I had a stack of poems printed and went to pick them off the printer and started to think, well, this is a lot of pages. Uh, could this be a collection? And, and then the, the effort to think about it as a book began. And did you see an arc in it or a thread that held it together, right? No, no. Not at first. <laughs> it took a long time. I, I definitely gravitate toward particular themes. I write about my family a lot. I write about community a lot. I write about empathy a lot. Um, and so what I did is I was kind of sorting through and, and marking themes and getting a sense for where those went together. But even after I got, you know, a sense for themes that were kind of percolating to the top, 
the effort to put them together, to find a through line, to find a way that they could kind of flow as a, in an arc, as you say, that took me quite a long time. And I had a, I had a lot of guidance on that, a tremendous amount of support from people who've done it before and have a better sense for how these things work than, than I do trying it for the first time. It's a little bit different of a skill than writing a poem, although it is similar. It's almost like the book is a big poem. Yeah, I think of it, I don't know, sometimes I think it's the difference between sprinting and running a marathon, and other times I think it's the difference between, well, if I were in a band and we were putting an album together and we were thinking, where do we start and where do we end, except instead of 12 songs, there are 55 or 60. It's just so much more difficult to figure out until you get a sense for it. Um, how to do it. But for me, I felt like I was using muscles that I'd never exercised before. And it took a while to get a sense for how they fire and, um, you know, build up the strength to do it, I guess. Do you find, did you find that you threw away poems or didn't throw them away, but you put them aside, you took out poems you really liked, but they just didn't fit. Yeah. And that was the hardest part. I'm, I really, I think wanted to eventually get to the point where I was, I was having the same conversations throughout the collection uh, I tried to sneak a couple in that the editors flagged like it's it's kind of uncanny how I, I had the benefit of a couple of readers um, at Milkweed uh, and and whenever I got too far away from theme they they pointed it out and kind of kept me close to what was really I think primary in the collection but it was it can be hard to lose a poem you love uh, and, and want to try to make fit, um, you know, I like to think they still exist. Uh, it's for your next book. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere along, hopefully that's, yeah, I'd love to keep talking about this cause I'm trying to put together my second manuscript, but I, uh, I kind of think maybe my audience would have more diverse interests in putting together a manuscript. So <laughs> even though this is what's on my mind right now. So I asked you to bring in a poem of someone that really inspires you, a poem that really speaks to you. Mm -hmm. And you brought one called Cento Between the Ending and the End. Oh, and gosh darn it. I forgot to look up what a cento was. Oh, I'm happy to help. Yeah, good. A cento is a poem constructed of lines from other poems. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I love that. I feel like all my poems are centos. Right. You know, um, we're all, I think, inspired by work that we read and poets we admire. So yeah. you're probably not too far from it. Yeah, not exact words, but it's like all stuff I've heard that's just like stuck in my brain. Okay, so cento between the ending and the end. Yeah. What an amazing title. Right. And his, the name of the poet is Cameron Awkward Rich. Yes. And, and uh, that, you know, it's funny because I was just talking about the name Gerard Manley Hopkins. Right. What an amazing name. This one's, yeah. this one's also amazing. Mm -hmm. Cameron Awkward Rich. Like awkward and rich are almost oxymoronic. It's a great name. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful name. And I'm a huge Cameron Awkward Rich fan. I first met him 
or I should say saw him perform in 2015 when he was in Minneapolis and read at the Loft Literary Center, not too far from where I live. And I was just blown away by the reading, by the work, and have just kind of kept track of what Cameron is doing and reading his poems when I encounter them in the world. This one, Sinto Between the Ending and the End, has been, I, I don't know how many times I've read it this year. I just go back to it over and over and over. I admire it so much on the level of theme. I admire it as a form, the Sinto. And I particularly love how the form is supporting the message here. Um, it's a poem for, to me that's about community and um, our found family. And the fact that it's a Sinto constructed of lines from poets that Cameron knows and admires and is in friendship with, to me just really elevates the form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, about more community. Well, yeah, how we're all sort of sharing one voice. Well, why don't you go ahead and read it? Um, This is uh, Michael Kleber Diggs reading here on the Hive Poetry Collective. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Sinto Between the Ending and the End by Cameron Awkward Rich. Sometimes you don't die when you're supposed to. And now I have a choice. Repair a world or build a new one. Inside my body, a white door opens into a place queerly brimming. Gold light, so velvet gold. It is like the world hasn't happened. When I call out, all my friends are there. Everyone we love is still alive, gathered at the lakeside like constellations. My honeyed kin, honeyed light. Beneath the sky, a garden blue stalks. A garden, blue stalks, white buds, the moon's marble glow. The fire, distant and flickering. The body, whole, bright-winged, brimming with the hours of the day. Beautiful, nameless planet. Oh, friends, my friends, bloom how you must, wild, until we are free. Oh, my goodness. I just don't even know what to say about this. Spectacular. uh, Yeah. um, It reminds me a little bit of Lucille Clifton. I just, I didn't think about this when I first read it, but it kind of reminds me of that poem where she said something like, oh, celebrate with me that every day someone tried Mm -hmm. to kill me and I'm still alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and failed, I think is the last line or something like that, yeah. Yeah, because this, it seems like he's talking about almost like a near death experience. Sometimes you don't Mm -hmm. die when you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. And I just admire anyone that can come back from trauma or almost dying and then deciding that they have a choice, repair a world or build a new one inside my body. Mm -hmm. And then to describe it so beautiful, a white door opens into a place queerly brimming, gold light, so velvet gold is like the world hasn't happened. a kind of rebirth in that way. Really wonderful. And it's so alive. 
a garden of blue stalks, white buds, the moon's marble glow, the fire distant and flickering, the body whole bright winged bringing, brimming with the hours of the day, beautiful, nameless planet. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. It's incantatory. It is. And so hopeful, so hopeful. I, I like that aspect of survival um, and second chance and you know, resilience and being in community with people who can understand and, and resonate where that, those same ideas resonate with them as well. I think there's real power in that. I'll tell you, I feel like we need it now more than ever. Indeed. I know yeah. that I am turning more to poetry like that. Um, you know, I was more of a, like, I liked the sort of transgressive, uncomfortable truth teller, um, more harsh poetry. But, mm -hmm. but as I go through these changing times, I really need the solace of these poems that just talk about survival. Yeah. And I think there's, there's really room for both. And I try to read widely and take in the harsh truth tellers and the people who are pointing us toward, who are working in the aspirational themes and pointing us toward our better selves. And um, I think this Cameron Awkward Rich poem is um, a lot about what it's like to be a person on the margins and feel like your life is constantly in the lost hairs and to persist in spite of that and to continue on and to find community with people who share those same experiences and to go on loving them and supporting each other. And um, we're still here. Um, and um, yeah, I just, I, I think that those poems are important too at a time when our country is so divided and, and continues its long fascination with violence and oppression. And narcissism. Yep, that too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, a white door opens into a place queerly brimming. And I think there's a lot of self-acceptance there in that right. choice of words. And so wonderful. Thank you for bringing this one. Um, let's move to one of your poems. And we were talking about a poem that we thought maybe resonated the most with Cameron's poem is your poem, The Grove. Yeah. So um, why don't you go ahead and read The Grove. This is Michael Cleaver Diggs reading The Grove on the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Grove. Planted here as we are, see how we want to bow and sway with the motion of earth and sky. Feel how desire vibrates within us as our branches fan out. Promise entanglements rarely touch. Near our sweet rustlings. If only we could know how twisted up our roots are, we might make vast shelter together. Cooler places, verdant spaces, more sustaining air. But we are strange trees reluctant in this forest. We oak and ash, we pine, the same, the same, not different. All of us reach toward star and cloud. All of us want our share of light, 
just enough rainfall. Thank you, Michael. That was The Grove from Michael Cleaver Dick's wonderful book, Worldly Things. You know, the first time I read this, the thought that came to my mind was, it makes me wonder why we want so much. Why we just want so much stuff. Right. And why we need it. Yeah. One of the things that I've taken from the pandemic is just an opportunity to, to think about my priorities and reconnect to think what's really important to me and what isn't. Um, I've been very fortunate during this time. I've not lost anyone that I love. I had one friend who really went through it um, on a ventilator twice and touch and go, but came out on the other side and seems to be doing well. Um, I transitioned to working at home and that transition went well. And I just, you know, had an opportunity to reflect on what's important to me. You always hate to think that it takes tragedy to do that, but um, it isn't stuff. Uh, it really isn't. Um, I could do with less, but it's uh, people. And I don't know, I think trying to make our time here meaningful and purposeful. Uh, leave it better than we found it. Yeah, you know, I was talking to a friend uh, just yesterday and he was saying with poet friend, he was saying, well, I was saying, cause I, I'm like really obsessed with narcissism right now. <laughs> I was saying, you know, we're like, a, this country's like one big narcissist. We're really obsessed with our appearance and we're really obsessed with money. Like, when people say, I love my country, I, I think to myself, okay, why do you love your country? I mean, what do we really have going for us? And mm. I'm like, well, we're rich. I mean, the country is the richest country in the world. Yeah. So that is, is that why we love our country? Because we're rich? Because, I mean, it's physically beautiful, um, but the whole world is, is beautiful. And we had some, mm -hmm. I mean, we had some good ideas. You know, all the yeah. there's some good, there's some good basic stuff there. But anyway, um, so that prompted him to say, well, if you lived in a country that wasn't as rich, like maybe like Japan or Sweden or, you know, not poor, no matter how rich you were, you'd still be driving on better roads. Yeah. You'd still wouldn't have like street people all over the place who are, you know, don't have a home. You wouldn't be stepping over, you know, vomit and stuff in the street. Yeah. People were having home, have homes. Yeah. Um, you'd, you'd have healthcare. You'd have healthcare. I mean, rich people in this country can probably get healthcare, but yeah. you have cheap healthcare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking, yeah, it's like, yeah, we're rich, but if you're rich in this country, you still have to drive on the same potholes and yeah. Um, well, and then there's a couple things. I mean, there are so many people here who are not doing well, as you pointed out. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's financial health and there's spiritual health. And you could probably make an argument that very few countries in the world achieve spiritual health. But I think it's fair to say some are further away from it than others. Um, and I think that we're plagued by history here in a lot of ways. I think that there was so much 
um, violence and cruelty in the founding of this country perpetuated against Black people like myself and also against um, Indigenous people. And we've never really made that right. And I, I think that that leads to and perpetuates a lot of systems of cruelty that persist today. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to apologize for something, it's more than just saying, I'm sorry. Yeah, There's you gotta try to, try to make it right. And yeah. um, I, I don't think that we really wanna do that yet. Not, not those who have the most and who have the greatest access to power and, and conversations. I think it's quite the opposite. I think they're doing everything they can to hold on to as much as they can for as long as they can. Yeah, that's extremely distressing to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, on that happy note. That's why, that's why. Yeah. I'm poetry, but, no, it, no, but you're Dion, right. In, yeah, exploring these things is important. Mm-hmm, it and is. It's a good question to ask, well, how do you make amends? Like, yeah. how do you make this right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can really explore things like that in poetry. How do you become whole? Right. What is yeah. the future? I think you do that a lot in your poems. Well, thanks for saying that. It is something that I think about um, primarily as a, a barrier to community and closeness. Uh, in the Grove, one of the things that I was thinking about is it's the, the way the poem started is I was thinking about trains, light rail train cars, believe it or not. And I was thinking about trees riding on the train. And the reason for that is because I originally wrote this poem for a contest here that our Metro Transit put on. And I uh, selected poems would be placed inside buses and trains. And so I started with this idea of trees riding on a train just as a funny idea. And, and I found myself really talking about how close we are, how intertwined we are, if we look beneath the surface and how we imagine that we're different, that trees are part of a larger ecosystem, that they're all interdependent, that we might try to suggest that an oak is radically different than a pine, but the reality is they both need good soil conditions and rain and sunlight and um, that we're more alike than we are different. And I, I wanted to focus on that idea. And I also wanted to focus on how, um, intertwined our histories are. It, much like tree root systems, we're, um, we're all connected, whether we want to acknowledge that or not. Well, you craft, the, you craft it really well because you start off with a, with a very true fact, planted here as we are, and then you have some commands. See how we want to bow and sway, feel how desire vibrates us. So you're inviting the reader in to just feel like just mm -hmm. feel how we're part of the earth. Just be in the moment forever. Promise entanglements rarely, um, let's see, feel how desire vibrates within us as our branches fan out. Fan out. Promise entanglements rarely touch. Um, and then you'd make a little leap into a more um, utopian place of hope. Yeah. If only we could know how twisted up our roots are we might make our vast shelter together. Yeah, it's not like you say, this is what we should do. No. 
um, you do make some commands. You ask the people just to feel themselves in their body. And then when you get them mm -hmm. relaxed, kind of meditative, yeah. if, if only, and then you describe what it would be like, cooler places, verdant spaces, more sustaining air. So, you know, it would be nice. We'd have all these things, but we are strange trees. Yeah. We take a little turn, but for some reason, you know, we don't really want to apologize completely. You know, we might go, yeah, there were a few bad things, but. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we are strange things. Um, and then it kind of asks us again to just consider what is it we really need? All of us want our share of light, just enough rainfall. We really all just want and need this, these small things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's lovely construct. It's really crafted for this. Just a short little poem. It, it's not a sonnet, is it? Not not technically. I mean, it might be close though. It's Thirteen lines. You're almost okay. I should have added one more. <laughs> yeah, it's thirteen lines. Just a sweet little, and it kind of has that sonnet thing where your first part. Uh, just sets us, uh, sets the stakes. The next part raises the stakes, and then you really take yeah. a turn. But we are strange. Yep, there's a little Volta. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's about a sound. Yeah. Oh, this is like we're being poetry nerds here. But that's what we like. Um, so let's move on to another poem. Um, first oh. off, if anyone just tuned in, this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Deanna Riley on the Hive Poetry Collective, and I'm talking to Michael Kleber Diggs. His first book, Worldly Things, won the Max Ritvo Poetry Prize and was selected by Henri Cole, um, who is a fine poet. And it's a beautiful book. On the cover, there are two boys in white t-shirts that look like they're about to catch a basketball. That's, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's it, exactly. They're looking up at the sky and they look really similar, these two. Yeah, this is, um, this is a photo by a photographer I admire a great deal named Wing Young Huey. Um, and his work uh, is, is rooted, has been rooted in documenting kind of everyday life. And uh, this is a photo that in, in his original version at the very top, you can see the basketball rim. Um, for the book, uh, the art director at Milkweed kind of cropped it uh, so that the rim would not would not be there. And then they're looking up expectantly. And I, I think a lot of people understand maybe that there's uh, that they're playing basketball. But I love that it, in theory, could be anything. Um, but looking heavenward and um, with anticipation and expectation, it just, to me, really... Um, works well with the, the themes that I hope to explore in the book. Well, basketball is kind of aspirational. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's read inconvenience. So that's two words, inconvenience. Yes. Yeah. She never called it industry. Grandmother didn't. But everything served a particular purpose. Consider dinner probably chicken and green beans from her garden, a tiny butterhead lettuce salad with tomatoes, cucumbers, and yellow onions, 
warm bread from grain she grew, then ground herself. Preserves from some other season fetched up from the cellar. She would have chosen a chicken earlier in the day, chased it down, undressed it, then dressed it, put bones to boil for stock, used feathers to line the coop, sent beak and claws and everything else not needed out to field, if not for carrion exactly, useful in some other way. I study her in the small kitchen we had at our farmhouse in Oklahoma, standing resolutely in old resold shoes, wearing a dress she'd sewn from a simplicity pattern, the source of her apron too. I watch her setting aside the gizzard and guts then turn to start a cake. I was never really there, even when I was. I would have been outside picking up rocks or fishing at the pond, so alive. By my time, we were well into the appliance age, frozen things assembled and shipped from factories far away. Grabbed at the grocery, stored in our basement freezer, not better. No one felt that way, but easier. Bringing up time for other pursuits. Women could work to support the war, then leisure might make our lives richer. We might go to sock hops, take up tennis, make art. Behind my house today, a blue bin holds bottles, newspapers, plastics, foils. A black bin holds our trash, wrappers mostly. I put a banana peel from Guatemala into a small green bin with all the food we didn't eat. Thank you. That was Michael Cleaver Diggs reading Inconvenience. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Well, in terms of craft, I think you have some fabulous diction in here. Uh, just simple word choice. Some um, preserves from some other season. Like yeah. there are so many ways you could have said that. And, <laughs> um, and the whole poem is sort of a preserve from another season. That's right. Yeah, thank you so much for recognizing that. I, you know, I, um, the genesis for this poem, I was in my poetry group and um, just found myself writing about my family. And I really wanted to write a love letter to my grandmother. And um, as part of that, I think also saw myself reflecting back on oh, the, the thrift of her time and the economy of her time, which was born in a lot of ways of necessity. Um, if you don't have extra, you don't waste. Uh, and she grew up in a time when you really kind of maximized all the things that you had and knows that the early lessons in her life um, guided her for all her days. Uh, and I think sometimes about how her sacrifices and you know, care and attentiveness allowed so many blessings in my own life. That's true for all four of my grandparents that they sacrificed so that I wouldn't have to sacrifice as much. And um, I found myself kind of gravitating toward a little bit of a critique of this time. We, t we alluded to it earlier in the talk, like we have so much stuff. And um, 
things are so much easier. It does not take all day to make dinner at my house. Um, and, you know, I use my time for other things. I, I say make art, but, um, you know, I was really kind of thinking about the blessings of being able to spend time writing poetry and, um, and what kind of allowed that. So, yeah, I mean, I mainly though, just wanted to, to think about her and remember her and, and all the things that she did um, just to allow the life I have today. Um, yeah, I think that I am a little older than you, but I just feel like I grew up on the cusp of when we stopped, um, when plastics came along, really. Yeah, yeah. I when everything was made out of glass and, you know, metal um, yeah. and ceramic. So, yeah, we saw that change. I just want to mention some other great diction in this. I love how I grew up on a farm. So um, I love how you, and I just can imagine this idea of butchering a chicken, undressed it, then dressed it. (laughs) That's that's just so great. You know, pull out the feathers and then like what rub butter on it, stuff it. it, (laughs) So I love that. And also, you know, I think, like I grew up on a farm, but we never lined our, um, what I'm imagining is it's the laying boxes. Yeah. Lining the laying boxes with feathers. We always put straw in there. Yeah. But, you know, they probably would like feathers better. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I still <laughs> yeah. live on a farm. I'm like, man, yeah. we, we should do that. that. That's a really good idea. And I loved resolutely in old resold shoes just for, and then the simplicity pattern, just I yeah. don't know, so evocative, but craft wise, one thing I really loved was your ending all the food we didn't eat. Sometimes I end a poem and I'm like, that's the last line, but I don't really examine why. And I think this is such a good last line because all the food we didn't eat is almost a symbol for just what we've lost. Mm -hmm. What, you know, what we're not eating in life, what we're not being able to enjoy and consume, what we're throwing away and losing in our lives now because of the way we live. And, and just seeing it kind of piled up there in the trash. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're losing, you know, that's what we're leaving behind. So it's a, a really good final image because it kind of just sums up the whole poem. Yeah, thank you so much. I, um, I, I'm i kind of a full disclosure person. I, I cannot remember, I'm trying to think, but I, I kept going a little bit past that idea and Henri Cole suggested that I stop there. And um, I, uh, I cannot remember what I said kind of after that. Um, but but when, I, when I saw his notes and, and his notes were few, um, but, but very impactful. And a lot of it was pulling me away from my instinct for the ta-da finish, the really big finish, which I'm, I'll just confess a weakness too. I love dessert after dinner and I love poems. I like, I like my own poems to end 
I'm like, ta-da, did I earn the ending? Did I earn the ending? But um, in, in, I would say probably three instances, he, he shared notes along the lines of, end it here. And, and as I spent time reflecting on those comments, I accepted them in every instance except for one. Um, the time that I did not accept it, I was writing in form. I was, uh, the poem is a bop. Um, it's called Here All Alone, and it's in, in, in the collection. And I needed to keep the last line because I really wanted to honor the form. A bop is a new poetic form that originated at Cave Canem, which is a, um, a fellowship for Black poets. And I, I, the, the big part of that poem was to write a bop and to connect myself to that tradition. And so I couldn't imagine taking out the last line and departing from the form. And it's not as widely known a form as say a sonnet, but in every other instance I took his note and I really love the effect that it has here of kind of um, allowing that opening to, to be more, in a way more brisk, but also more complex and more challenging. And, uh, I was really grateful for that note. I just love a teacher where less is more. Yeah. They really just show you how to be yourself. Right. Better. Yeah. And by the way, when I'm commenting on other people's work, I often say, I think you could end here. Um, but for, for myself, I think particularly in some of these pieces in my first book, uh, being in some ways an older poet and a younger poet at the same time, I, I felt grateful for people who pulled me away from my wilder instincts in, in a few instances where it was helpful. Hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it's good to get what more wild and sometimes yeah. you have to yeah, get, yeah. pull it in. It's just yeah. like life. It's just like life. Right. <laughs> you know, there, there's this um, Lee young Lee poem that I'm crazy about called of blossoms. Um, and it's about stopping to buy peaches on the roadside. And it has this extraordinarily lush ending with repetition and it's a gigantic ending. And I could think of a few poets maybe saying, uh, I think you could end earlier, but I'm so glad he didn't. It's ecstatic. It's so passionate and it, it works so well with the themes of the poem. I really couldn't imagine it any other way. Yeah, sometimes you just got to put your foot down and yeah. have it your way. It's like this mm -hmm. is that. And, you know, it's funny because I was actually talking to my students about this. Like anyone who ever went to teacher school studied Bloom's taxonomy yeah. of cognition. And it goes through the levels of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And on the bottom is just rote knowledge, like A, B, C, D, one plus one, you know. And then on the top, the very top is evaluation and judgment. Yeah. And that is the hardest thing is to look yeah. at your poem and, you know, be like the Judeo-Christian God, look at your creation and know it is good. You know, that's right. Uh, it, that really is it because it'll make you stop when you need to stop. It'll make you keep going when you need to yeah. keep going. Mm -hmm. it, it really, it really comes with time, I think. And I, it, yeah. But the more you analyze and the more you look at other people's endings and the more you have an Henri Cole in your life that goes, hey, there's your ending. Right. The more you are able to evaluate. So true. And I think it's hard to do with our own work because 
we loved it the way we wrote it for a reason. And it's difficult to summon the detachment it requires to be truly, um, you know, to really do that kind of evaluation. And uh, sometimes we can do it. And I, I know I benefit from time. You know, if I take a break after I've written a few drafts and come back to it later, I'm, I tend to be less in love with things that I felt I absolutely had to have in earlier drafts. Um, but it, it, I think it can be helpful to have uh, others kind of give you guidance on that. And I think it's really helpful when they're pointing to your tendencies um, so that you can see your patterns. And, and sometimes we want to lean into those and sometimes we want to lean away from them. Yeah. Yeah. In that way, it's a little bit like um, therapy. Like, right. what's, what's my pattern? You know, when, yeah. when does it work for me? When is it not? And how can I not be codependent with my poems and see them right. as they are and not try to yeah. control them and uh, all that, all that good stuff. Yeah. It's, it's the walk of life. Poetry's like, is the walk of life. Uh, so maybe we should walk on to the next poem. Mm -hmm. um, oh, this, yeah, I, I said this is your stairway to heaven. Yeah, this is my don't stop believing song. <laughs> I wish we were different generation. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you went to see Led Zeppelin or Journey and they didn't play Stairway to Heaven or they didn't play Don't Stop Believing, you'd be like, hey... Uh, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. You know why we're here. Play it. <laughs> so now it's time for your big hit. Yeah. Coniferous fathers. Let's fashion gentle fathers, expressive, holding us how we wanted to be held before we could ask. Singing off-key lullabies written for us songs every evening like possibilities fathers who say this is how you hold a baby but never mention a football say nothing in that moment just bring us to their chests naturally without shyness let's grow fathers from pine not oak coniferous fathers raising us in their shade fathers soft enough to bend Fathers who love us like their fathers couldn't. Fathers who can talk about menstruation while playing a game of pepper in the front yard. No, take baseball out. Let's discover a new sort. Fathers as varied and vast as a superior forest. Let's fill off sternness and play down wisdom. Give us fathers of laughter and fathers who cry. Fathers who say, check this out, I'm scared, I'm sorry, or I don't know. Give us fathers strong enough to admit they want to be near us. They've always wanted to be near us. Give us fathers desperate for something different, not Johnny Appleseed, not even Atticus Finch. No more Rolling Stones. No more lazy boy dads reading newspapers in some other room. Let's create folklore side by side in a garden, singing psalms about abiding. Just that, abiding. 
being steadfast, present, evergreen and ethereal. Let's make the old needle soft enough for us to rest on, dream on, next to them. Oh, thank you, Michael. That was Michael Cleaver Diggs reading from his book, Worldly Things, Coniferous Fathers. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 98.7 FM. You know, while you were reading this, I was just thinking, what if everyone's father was just that nonviolent and I mean, like a tree, steadfast and yeah. Yeah. providing shelter. Um, you know, what kind of a world would it be? Yeah. And that's really what I was writing toward. I, by the way, you probably noticed that the grove and coniferous fathers are kind of in conversation with each other. It's trees and shade and shelter. And um, for me, I was thinking about fathers. I was thinking about men. I was thinking about a lot of the harm that we perpetuate in the world. I was thinking about the fact that most of the harm perpetuated in the world is perpetuated by men. Limited models of masculinity, limited notions of what fathers do and how they are and how they act and really kind of wanting to challenge all of that towards something more purposeful, more tender, more loving, more expansive, more generous. Um, a lot of that, of course, is rooted in my personal experience. I lost my father to violence when I was very young. And uh, at the time that I became a father, without kind of, there was no intentional intentionality to it. I just found myself thinking about what kind of father do I want to be and um, made some mistakes along the way that helped me really kind of get to that question faster. Um, not want to default to a particular kind of parenting, but to to really, in, in a way, define fatherhood in differently than it than the most compelling example I saw. And so I was writing about that and thinking about that, and um, as you pointed out, just imagining what the world would be like if everyone's had fathers who were present and kind and. Um, you know, willing to admit when they get it wrong. It's funny that sort of the theme of our conversation is how do you apologize? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you make it right? How do yeah. you give it context to the person you hurt? How do you move on differently? How do you not make excuses, but at least show how it happened? You know, right. um, all these all these pieces of repairing, mm -hmm. of reparation. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, I was talking narcissism again. I mean, that's so part of being a narcissist and living in a narcissistic country is there is no depth. It's just, I'm the father, I'm America. This is how it is, I will not be questioned. There isn't yeah. that ability to, without that ability to be vulnerable and let go of the facade, 
it, it, there's no change. Yeah. And the description you just offered suggests infallibility, which is absurd. Um, because we're all human, we're all going to get it wrong at times. And, um, you know, just to, to reflect back on themes that have been present in our conversation today, uh, when you get it wrong, you got to go back and make it right. And if you don't, that, that wrongness um, continues on. Uh, the work of repair ends up being critical or um, undone. Those are your two choices. And the stakes are pretty high. We have a, a generation of men who are captivated by fear, who are, um, I think, conf confined emotionally and spiritually in ways that end up being um, harmful to themselves and to others. And I want to have a lot. I want to have a conversation about that. A lot of my writing right now is kind of around men and masculinity and, and trying to imagine new models and to keep that those ideas present in my work. Well, my father was in World War II and saw a lot of action. Um, and it was never addressed. And my grandfather was British and saw trench warfare in France. And it was never addressed. So there's this feedback loop of men being traumatized and and not having it addressed and then what they pass on to their children because of that. Uh, so that the, they are more inclined to go back to war because it's the only way they really know how to function if they've been traumatized right. too deeply by war. So it, it is kind of a feedback loop uh, the country and our propensity for war and the way men behave as fathers. And that was something I really thought about uh, when I was reading this, fathers who love us like their fathers couldn't. And mm -hmm. I think that one of the reasons why my father, uh, my father loved me, but he failed at loving me. That's uh, actually a line from one of my poems. Mm -hmm. And I think he was, it was, you know, he had terrible PTSD. He would scream and, and have nightmares every night, almost every yeah. single day of his life. So, um, yeah, I, it's, it's just something that just keeps getting passed down. Right. Right. It's generational and it's hard to disrupt. Um, it takes mindfulness and persistence and, you know, humility, uh, back to kind of the narcissism thing. You have to realize that you're going to get it wrong and you, you have to um, rededicate yourself and keep trying. And I, I, I'm talking right now like I'm someone who's got it all figured out. That's far from true. No, that's why we work on it in our poetry. But, you know, yeah. I think like <laughs> one of the things I wanted to bring up right away is like, <laughs> it was to have a father who can talk about menstruation, but not necessarily play football. <laughs> you know, right? That's yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and there is, you know, there is something about sports that is sort of a a metaphor for war. Yeah. That, yeah. that it's just it's the way that men relate to each other uh, to yeah. a degree. 
Gosh, you know what? We probably have time for just one more poem. So should we probably should move away from menstruation and more as much okay. as we hang out here. Um, but Coniferous Fathers, I, um, I'm sure is going to be anthologized over and over. And um, oh my gosh, there's just so much in it. Uh, so I hate to leave it. I always hate to leave the poems. I could talk and talk and talk about them, but why don't we just leave, read one more? Um, do you want to read America is Loving Me to Death? Or do you want to read, um, I think it was the last one in your book, Every Morning? Which one? Oh, let's read Every Morning. Okay, okay. I will, uh, I'll read the radio version. Oh, is there a, an F word in this or something? Not an F word. Oh, okay. Um, let's just tell our audience that it's every morning like M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Yes. Like being sad morning, not... Right. I love homonyms. Every morning. Morning. Walking my neighborhood, I come upon a colony of ants busy at work. I take care not to step on any and miss them all, then encounter up a ways a fellow traveler greeting the day and frightening her. No, she's afraid of me. Is she an introvert? Is she a neighbor? Is she just in from the burbs, from the country? Is she scared of the inner city? Am I the inner city? Is she racist? Couldn't I be the wary one? Or is she a survivor like me? It can't be what I'm wearing, khakis, a blue and white checkered button-down shirt, and the nylon sandals I favor because they're comfortable. Feet and breathe in them. Dear friends, I am the nicest man on earth. And I want to shout, morning! But just then a weaver or carpenter, just then a pharaoh or fire or pavement, just then a little black ant struggles by alone, alone. And in that moment, I want us to give ourselves over to industry, carry the weight of the day together, lighten it. I want to be part of a colony where I feel easy walking around, cool as the breeze, where I can breathe build structures sturdier and grander than this. A woman crosses to the other side of the street and I do what I usually do. Retreat into myself as far as I can, then send out whatever's left. That was Michael Cleaver Diggs reading every morning from his book, Worldly Things. This is Dion O'Reilly on the Hive Poetry Collective, KSQD.org and KSQD 90.7 FM. Um, oh my gosh. You know, I'm glad you called it every morning because it just is so sad that someone would cross the street like that. Uh, not that not that she would cross the street, but that the speaker would not know why she crossed. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I don't, yeah. And, and, and one of the things I hope comes across in the poem is 
I don't know if that's about my race. I don't know if that's about my gender. I don't know if that's about my size. I don't know if that's about some trauma that um, is in her past. Um, I do know that, um, you know, we're not meeting each other in that moment for whatever reasons, some valid, some unkind. Uh, and I, I mourn that. For whatever reason. For whatever reason. Yeah. It isn't good. Whatever it is, it it isn't good. Yeah. Why can't we just be more like trees in a grove? Why are we? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I love this um, little via negativa. I am frightening her. No, she is afraid of me. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. the difference, the difference. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. I'm not doing anything. And I love, or the speaker's not doing everything. And I love what the speaker is wearing. Like, okay, you really put it across that this person is innocent. Right. A white, a blue and white checkered button down shirt and the nylon sandals. Yeah. You know, and, you know, if they had socks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This looks like this really seems like yeah. an innocent person. And, and Dion, I mean, I'm my my work is narrative and confessional, and the speaker in the poems is me. Uh-huh. Uh, and I do. I mean, your your listeners can't see me, but I I dress um, in in what you call dad core or norm core, just sensible <laughs> shirts and and sandals. And sometimes I do wear socks with my sandals. But you know, this is this is connecting to a conversation often had in the black community rooted in kind of 1960s mythology or as we see it now as mythology which is if you dress a certain way and act a certain way and conduct yourself a certain way people will see your humanity and and give you respect we learned that that's not the case yeah it's like what it's like with women what was she wearing what was yeah, she yeah 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 <laughs> yeah it it shouldn't matter and as it turns out it doesn't um and and i'm also kind of connecting to my lived reality which is that i people react to me with wariness or concern or fear, um, regardless of where I am and what I'm doing and, and all of those types of things. That's a that's a them thing and not a me thing. But it, it does take its toll over time. It's narcissism again. It's being superficial yeah. and just looking at, at the appearances of things. Right. But you know what? Oh, we're just getting into it and it's time to say goodbye. And it's like the end of the... Mickey Mouse Poetry Club, <laughs> say goodbye oh, to yeah. the family. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed the conversation, Dion. Thank you so much. Too. Thank you. So that's, we've been talking to Michael Kleber Diggs. Pick up his book, Worldly Things. Such a lovely book. Uh, this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Thanks for tuning in.